Hello, friends, and welcome to the monthly World Goodwill webinar, which takes place, as you know, on the last Wednesday of every month at 5 p.m. BST, 12 noon EDT, and 6 p.m. CET. You may also watch the webinar broadcast on the page of World Goodwill on Facebook and on Lucy's Trust channel on YouTube. A warm welcome to those joining us through, those, through these media. So this month's webinar is taking place just a couple of days under the Libra full moon. And this Libra energy is the energy concerned very much with material supply. In that spirit, we will soon welcome Share the World's Resources, an organization active in precisely the field concerned with the distribution of planetary resources. But I will tell you more about that in a moment. Um, what I would like to draw your attention to is that next month, there will be no goodwill webinar as um, it is very, very near this year's World Goodwill Seminar. And that will take place on the 29th of October. It's a Saturday and it will be a grander event, a more festive occasion. So bear that in mind, of course, we will um, upload the notification on our website, but I wanted to make it clear um, through here as well. So back to share the world's resources. As I said, it's uh, an organization which provides a service, let's say, in the field concerned with uh, how the material resources of the planet are distributed. You will hear from Adam Parsons, who is one of the key figures behind Share the World's Resources and has been kind enough to be here with us today to introduce, introduce us to their work. Uh, after Adam's um, talk, there will be time for questions or for comments from the audience. We will prioritize Zoom audience, but if there is time left, we will also try to take some questions from our audience on Facebook or on YouTube. So without further delay, I would like to welcome Adam from Share the World's Resources. Adam, are you here? Hello, yes. Can you, can you hear me and see me? <laughs> uh, we can hear you and we can see you very well. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm very excited to hear about what your organization is doing. It is always very good for us to be able to hear from people that are, as we say, in the field where the action happens because we mostly um, work on the inner side of things. So please go ahead. Sure, thank you. Well, um, 
Yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you about our work here at Share the World's Resources. Uh, the last time I spoke to World Goodwill was actually back in uh, 2008, would you believe, at your annual seminar, which was held in support of the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the themes we discussed back then, uh, that was in the wake of the global financial crisis, are today obviously more urgent than ever. Um, what I would like to do for those who may not be familiar with our organization is to speak for 10 or 15 minutes perhaps about who we are, our perspective on international affairs and also our campaign vision. And I can also overview our understanding of the cause for sharing global resources, uh, what that means in broad terms. Uh, to my mind, I think the cause that we stand for is really of the, the utmost common sense. How can there be any solution to the manifold crises facing humanity unless we share the resources of the world more equitably and sustainably, both within nations and internationally? And considering the, the inertia and myopia of our governments, how can that happen unless there is a, a monumental engagement of civil society, of men and women of goodwill everywhere who are called upon at this pivotal time in human history to stand up and raise our voices for this, this cause of all causes, this movement of all movements, that right now is not a cause that is really on the lips of most political activists, that is not even a, a movement to speak of. So even to talk of the idea of international sharing today is to, to walk a, a very lonely road and a very misunderstood road due to all the conflicting ideologies and isms that plague our understanding. And yet, as students of the ageless wisdom, we know that sharing is the, the only future for humanity because indeed it is part of the plan. And indeed within the principle of sharing is a great and holy science that in the words of the master DK, ever governs divine purpose. Perhaps I can also quote if I may, uh, some of the words of DK from the book by Alice Bailey, The Externalization of the Hierarchy, that speaks much about the principle of sharing and its future promise as um, a recognized motivating concept of the new civilization. It states, the new world order will recognize that the produce of the world, the natural resources of the planet and its riches belong to no one nation, but should be shared by all. There will be no nations under the category haves and others under the opposite category. A fair and properly organized distribution of the wheat, the oil, and the mineral wealth of the world will be developed based upon the needs of each nation, upon its own internal resources and the requirements of its people. All this will be worked out in relation to the whole. Those words were published in 1957. And in the book, The Problems of Humanity, published just after the Second World War, it is also written Someday, the principles of cooperation and of sharing will be substituted for those of possessive greed and competition. This is the inevitable next step ahead for humanity, one for which the entire evolutionary process has prepared mankind. So it's instructive for us to take a step back and look at where we stand in relation to those words around 70 years later. Regardless of the advancements of modern society through a communications revolution and economic globalization, still humanity is characterized by superdivisions between the very rich and the very poor, 
total global wealth has grown to record levels, yet the bottom half of the world population own less than 1% of all this financial abundance. The rising number of billionaires in the world own as much wealth as the poorest half of the planet combined. And perhaps nothing describes the lack of sharing in our societies more than the incidence of hunger and destitution within affluent nations like here in Britain, where record numbers of people on low incomes are turning to food banks to survive. But there is no escaping uh, the fact that the impact of extreme poverty is generally far more severe in less developed countries, where millions of people face constant food insecurity and starvation, despite there being enough food available in the world to feed everyone one and a half times over. According to World Bank statistics, around 4.3 billion people live on less than $5 a day, the very minimal amount of income that might ensure a dignified life. And as a consequence of, of life-threatening deprivation and inadequate social protection, around 15 million people continue to die every, every year from largely avoidable poverty-related causes, uh, equivalent to more than 40,000 people every single day. This is why for, for decades now, SCWR has stood behind the vision in the long forgotten Brandt Report of 1980. This was the recommendations of a group of, of respected world leaders chaired by the former chancellor of Germany, Willy Brandt, who together advocated for an international emergency program and a major restructuring of the global economy with the immediate aim of eliminating hunger and extreme poverty. Of course, the political will to implement those measures was lacking in the early 1980s. And not since then have governments seriously considered ending poverty in a way that is commensurate with the vast scale of this ongoing emergency. Although many of the Brandt Commission's recommendations may be outdated after almost 40 years, the report still contains an inspired outline of what it means to implement the principle of sharing as a guide to political attitudes and global economic activity. Now more than ever, a massive transfer of resources is called for on an international scale with a view to securing the long agreed human rights of the poorest people who are struggling to survive. But to the contrary, in the past few years, we have witnessed the greatest rise in inequality since records began with the already wealthy and large corporations being the main beneficiaries of public bailout funds during the global pandemic. The World Food Programme was even reduced to pleading with billionaires to help provide emergency aid to the record numbers of people facing famine. It is clear that the, the group of seven nations and other wealthy nations largely failed the test of international cooperation, most of all in terms of the mandatory worldwide sharing of a COVID-19 vaccine. And with the combined effects of climate change and the war in Ukraine, the world is now facing an ever greater humanitarian emergency. Even before the war started in February, hunger and malnutrition were on the rise globally with an unacceptable 823 million people estimated to be going hungry last year. Over the course of the pandemic, the number of severely food insecure people literally doubled with almost 50 million people now estimated to be on the edge of famine. And as food prices are continuing to rise, another 19 million more people 
are expected to face chronic undernourishment by next year. This is a global disaster that far too few people are talking about, while affluent nations are massively increasing military spending and cutting aid flows to the world's poorest nations. The United Nations humanitarian project today face a record funding gap at a time when demand for uh, support to help the world's most vulnerable has reached an all-time high. I should also stress, of course, that overseas aid alone will never be enough to transform our world along more just and spiritual lines. Long before the pandemic struck, for example, Africa was losing about $192 billion every year to the rest of the world, more than six times the amount of aid going back to the continent. Developing countries as a whole lose about a trillion dollars each year through tax evasion and other corrupt practices, which is nearly 10 times the size of the aid budget. Tackling the root causes of poverty and inequality will clearly demand major structural reform of the global economy based upon a genuine form of multilateral cooperation and economic sharing. It is not about merely upscaling aid as a form of charity. It is about the kind of systemic transformations that are necessary for everyone to enjoy dignified lives in more equal societies with economic justice. The question is how we may even begin to reverse the current trends towards catastrophe and endless suffering for the struggling majority. The reversal of governmental priorities that is needed to ameliorate this immense crisis may never be achieved unless world public opinion focuses on the worsening reality of poverty amidst plenty. Never before has it been so important for an enormous outpouring of public support in favour of sharing the world's resources, thus to guarantee the long agreed socioeconomic rights of every citizen, every citizen, no matter where they live. That is why at SDWR, we believe that we should coalesce our voices around Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which proclaims the right of everyone to an adequate standard of living for nutritious food, housing, medical care, access to social services and financial security. As proposed in our flagship book, um, we need unprecedented numbers of people to unite behind a single overarching demand for governments to implement Article 25 as an effective international law. It will require enormous, continuous and peaceful demonstrations on behalf of the least advantaged members of the human family, both in our own countries and far abroad. The time has come to forge a huge united public voice, one that has the potential to reorder global priorities and empower the United Nations to truly represent we the peoples of the world. There is much more to be said about our campaign and its vision, but for anyone who is interested, I would urge you to read this book, um, heralding Article 25, A People's Strategy for World Transformation, which is available from bookshops and can also be read for free on our website at sharing.org. We also have uh, regular online presentations and discussions where you can learn more about the campaign and get involved. Uh, our next event is on the 9th of November and you can sign up via our website uh, or our Facebook and Twitter pages. I would like to, to end by returning to the sentiments at the beginning of this introduction, 
where I touched upon the inevitability of the great cause for sharing to become the number one issue of our time. Um, I've not even mentioned the challenge of sharing the Earth's natural resources in order to combat climate change and meet the common needs of all within environmental limits. And there is clearly much, much more to this discussion from a spiritual point of view, for, for which I would again urge anyone interested to read the books by Mohammed Misbahi. I would particularly recommend one of our recently published books called The Sharing Economy, Inaugurating an Age of the Heart, um, which explores the need for a new education based on the art of being or self-realization, if we are to bring about a, a simpler, more equal and joyful way of living that embraces the ageless wisdom teachings. Um, Mohammed Mizbahi, SWR's founder, also writes more in that, this book about the the spiritual significances of our vision of heralding Article 25. For example, it states, hearken to the prospect of millions of people worldwide calling on governments to immediately prevent the shameless reality of needless poverty-related deaths. That unprecedented occurrence the first major recognition of our inner spiritual unity on the outer physical plane as represented by huge numbers of ordinary people uniting in peaceful protests on behalf of the good of the whole, of the one humanity. In that, I believe there is much to ponder and it will remain the core subject of our upcoming publications, including our soon to be released book on world governance. I would also give special mention to our book titled The Commons of Humanity, which has been reviewed in the Beacon magazine of the Lucis Trust and which gives a further unique and, and visionary interpretation of what it means to implement the principle of sharing on the supranational level, where all governments may someday consent to, to pool and redistribute their surplus resources through a strengthened United Nations system. But as always, the emphasis in these books is on the need for an inner transformation in our consciousness, in our compassionate awareness, if these outer systemic transformations are ever to become a reality. So um, I think I should perhaps end there. Thank you for, for listening. Um, I'll be happy to discuss further or to try and answer any questions you may have. Uh, thank you. So. Thank you, Adam. That was, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, the statistics to begin with are shocking because we don't we think of the issue of poverty we think of the issue of people not having the essentials but when you actually hear the numbers it shocks you and um, thank you for presenting the the way share the world's resources works um, I would like to give the floor to the audience and we already have a person with their hands up. So David Trice or Trice, um, please unmute yourself so that you can make your question. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you very well. I uh, did some research on uh, this very subject. And one shocking fact I found out was that 30 to 40% of food is consumed by the West is wasted. Wasted. 30 to 40%. I thought this might be included in uh, um, sharing.org's research and publications. 
Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, David, for mentioning that. Um, I know that Hans Heron from the, the Millennium Institute, he, he calculated that we produce enough food for 14 billion people. Um, you know, and so much of it is wasted. And indeed, we have lots of resources on our website um, about that. If you Google um, search for food waste, for example. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the statistics are, are shocking. Uh, that's in particularly in wealthy countries like, like ours here. Um, of course, it's complex in terms of food redistribution, food aid. Um, you know, it's really a lot of the problem is tangled up with the trades, the international trade system and the way the whole economy is structured towards exporting natural resources from low income countries towards the overconsumption of resources in rich countries. These are, these are big subjects, but yet it comes down to very simple principles. Um, so, yeah, it's um, an important, very important part of the puzzle. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what we're emphasizing for us from in terms of a campaign is it's just really the awareness that, that around, as Evangelia mentioned here, a lot, a lot of people are not often aware of just the scale of the humanitarian crisis we're facing and also the power that lies in our hands, uh, not just as consumers, you know, to consume more sustainably, but really to, to, uh, to join our voices together and start to really you know, stand up and speak out about this crisis and the need for our governments to do something because you know, all the uh, priorities are geared in, the, in the entirely the wrong direction. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's a very positive development that the issue of overconsumption in the West and not so much of consumption, but of waste, and especially food waste, has been more prominently in the consciousness in the last decade. And there have been some initiatives. I remember one hailing from Italy, I think, about uh, trying to create channels to essentially redistribute products that, let's say, were near their, um, their best before date of, by, from supermarkets to um, the poorer layers of the population. So something is moving, perhaps it should accelerate. Absolutely. Um, Joshua, thank you. Please unmute yourself and... Hi, folks. On, on this issue of food waste, there's this app called Too Good To Go, which people can sort of reserve end of the day meals from restaurants. So that's something that's being done if people are interested in checking that out. Thanks, Joshua. Yeah, that's there's a lot of these initiatives around. Some years ago, in the wake of the, the last financial crisis of the 2008, 2009, um, there's a lot of the ideas around the sharing economy sprung up and a lot of these food initiatives um, became very prominent then on a community level or even a national scale a lot of apps you know ways people could use to uh, to redistribute resources within their communities and help people on lower incomes and you know a lot of a lot of altruistic endeavors um, there's um we wrote about that there's another book i don't want to keep mentioning books but um this this book on studies on the principle of sharing there's one of the art of the essays um articles in this book speaks to that. It's called An Inquiry into the Meaning of Sharing Food. Um, and it's very pertinent to this discussion. Uh, and it's really about expanding our understanding of that idea of community resource sharing to the global level and what that means. And therefore calling on our governments to, to uh, actually 
share, share resources on, on an international scale. So I really recommend that, that um, article as well, which is on our website and can be read freely. Thank um, you, Adam. We have another two people with their hands up. Uh, Joseph Murphy, could you please unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, hi there. Um, Hello. Sure. Hi. Uh, thanks for your talks. Um, I'm sure it's necessarily a question. Is in relation to um, food and stuff. Well, there's so many different angles to it, but I do feel that localism, and in relation to kind of what Adam was saying, that actually it starts in communities, neighbours talking, raising each other's awareness of these sort of issues. I know there's someone like myself that's worked in the community for a long time. We've banging down so many doors to try and get support. You just get doors slammed in your face. So to a point, we've um, me and some colleagues have created an organisation called Good Grace uh, Farm. And we're based in the East Midlands in the UK, but we've set up a, uh, a farm in Kenya. Um, it's eight to ten acres. So basically we fund... Um, from our own pockets, our own wages. So it's like direct action, uh, giving back directly. And we, we do extra work to raise funds for that. So we buy the lease on the land for the first two years. We provide training, we provide salary for, for like a farm development manager. Um, we provide the seeds, everything else. Uh, and then the profits are split between going to one side to save towards a lease, buying more seeds going forward. And then for people to have um, food for the self, and we're we're doing that in conjunction um, with the uh, African Health um, and World Population that's based in Kenya. And I met the lady there, the uh, one of the UN uh, talks. She was a guest speaker, and the aim of that is so for the first two years, then we'll go on to another site in another region. So it's down to locality, but also through the through the education, through the through the training, kind of getting people to move away from quite negative they've learned so much off the west which is fertilizer stuff that poisons the ground and also uh seed and food security as well nutritious food because as we've seen for the last 20 30 years across the globe people moving out of um countryside into urbanized kind of city areas because i think it's going to be a great life but based on food accommodation and stuff like that so okay trying to regenerate or well, land and people care at the heart of it. So that is not just food, it is education, it is employment, but it starts with, if you don't eat, you're not in no fit state to be educated or do anything Absolutely. else. So. Absolutely, that's so true. It is vital. It is vital that you are alive first in order to do anything else. Thank you, Georgia. But it, but it does start with a conversation with your family members, with your neighbours, with your colleagues, with your friends. And even if you get, you get frowned upon or looked at funny, you know, it's based on goodwill. And even sharing them ideas and them principles that are up for debate, you will plant a seed that will, it's like the ripple effect in the pond. You throw a pebble in the pond, the ripples carry out. So, you know, always please share your ideas on these things. Try to learn more and pass that. And knowledge transfer as you go along. 
Yeah, thank you, thank you, Joseph. I, I would just just add that, uh, from my point of view, what we're um, encouraging people to, uh, to to do is to um. Uh, uh, it would encourage people to also talk about Article Twenty Five as part of those discussions, because um, indeed, you know, as this movement we're talking about, this vision obviously doesn't exist yet, and and. You know, we can do what we can in our communities to raise our own voices, but um, with the existing demonstrations uh, that reflects these the Article Twenty Five in some way. But uh, but we're encouraging people to actually use this, use this the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article Twenty Five specifically, to 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 start conversations because often people don't know about this. They don't even know about the you know the, the founding vision of the United Nations. Often so. This is a, for us the, a, a good place to start because then it points to the responsibilities of our governments um, as well as our own responsibilities. Um. Thank you, Adam. Um, let's see what Wendy Boyd has to say. Wendy, please unmute yourself. Hello, Wendy, can you hear us? Please unmute yourself. Hello? We yeah. can hear you now. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much for your uh, talk. It was very interesting, very informative. The thing that I'm left with thinking is you were saying at some part about it's not about upscaling aid. Um, increasing yeah, as a form of charity, yeah. Yes, yeah. And it comes back to that principle that there's more than enough money in the world. There's more than enough food. Um, corruption is something that seems to have is the sticking point. So, you know, corrupt governments and uh, misuse of those funds that especially in um, worse off countries. So I just wondered if you, what your views are on how to tackle corruption. I know that's a difficult question to answer because we wouldn't have corruption if we'd have answered it by now. But nevertheless, it needs thinking about, I feel. Yeah, thank, thank you, Wendy. It is important. Um, mm. And of course, you know, there's, you know, there is corruption. Every government has corruption and it may be in some least developed countries that there is you know very endemic corruption um, often sub-saharan african countries are cited for corruption being so egregious um, but we have to remember you know we, we could look at this from a kind of policy point of view technical point of view and the kind of the policies that need to to, to be implemented and but um but we have to remember that that the way the whole global economy is structured particularly through the you know the Bretton woods institutions the international monetary fund the world bank and through the trade bilateral trade agreements is a gross unfairness. And you know, the poorest countries are often through, through indebtedness, forced to export natural resources. Uh, and there's so much resource, as I mentioned, when I was talking about it not just being about aid, so much of resources from poorer countries flow to the richer countries, uh, far more than goes the other way um, uh, and billions more. So the, the way it's, it's important to have that bigger picture and so, yes, there are corrupt governments and leaders and, and they should be held accountable um, through, through, you know, through the right democratic processes, primarily. It's a question of democracy. 
Um, but what, we, what where we're coming from as a campaigning organization is the need really to have this um, this awareness of the importance of, of, of a global movement that points particularly to the United Nations and that looks to empower the United Nations. You know, we the peoples of the United Nations as the as the UN Charter begins. And right now it's we the it's the, the, the it should be we the we the states of the United Nations. It's it's it seems that um, it's the peoples don't have the power within the UN. And it's about reclaiming that founding purpose and vision of the UN um, through an enormous outpouring of goodwill focused on particularly the people who are starving to death every day and having a global movement around that. There's such a movement, millions of people proclaiming the rights of Article 25 ongoingly, ongoingly. Um, we may see many transformations happen within governments and these questions of, of corruption may, may begin to to, to, to change. Um, but it's an important question. Uh, maybe that's a, a, the quickest answer I could give. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. Thanks. Um, I think that's everything we have time for today. There's a, a question. Well, well, we'll take a last question that was actually put in the chat. And Clint Galvin asks, how do we get politicians to think globally when most are focused on their own nation's problems and can't even agree on how to take care of their own people? Um, that's a great question. Shall, shall I answer that? Uh, I mean, uh, it comes back, sorry. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, I would reaffirm that the, the the simple meshes I'm saying. I mean, governments don't think globally because people, the public doesn't think globally. If you knock on your neighbor's door and talk to them about Article 25, you know, people are like, like um, uh, Joseph was saying earlier, people shut the door in your face probably. You know, so it's, it comes down to the, the consciousness of, of ourselves and creating that awareness in ourselves, first of all, because the politicians reflect the mentality of the, of the populace, whether we like that or not. Um, it's up to us to engage. I mean, there are many political activists on working on many diverse causes um, and, off, um, and they, they too suffer from a lack of public engagement. When you go to the United Nations as an, as an NGO, as a civil society organization, it's very depressing to see the lack of influence that NGOs have at the UN, which reflects the lack of engagement of the, of the population as a whole, of, of the public. So it comes back down to this simple vision of we, you know, we need to get engaged. Now more than ever, we have to. It's that we're coming, whether we like it or not, we're coming to an age of protest. Protests have been escalating even during the pandemic, year on year um, in the recent sort of 10 years, particularly since 2008, 2009, um, the, since the age of austerity came in. Now we're facing an even greater age of austerity in the, in the, time, of, the time ahead. Um, most of the world population is going to be living under some form of austerity by next year. There's a, a indeed today there's the End Austerity Festival happening with lots of NGOs coming together to, to talk about this this issue. So it comes down to us really. You know the the governments won't reflect uh, that global consciousness, the need to share resources globally unless we make it a huge call, a, a call of calls, a movement of movements, like I was talking about. So <laughs> that's always my answer. It, it's quite interesting that you're saying that um, we were probably we were recently in the UN summit on education, and actually the the people involved directly 
in the UN were asking of youths to create a movement in order to create momentum that could help governments decide that this is a worthwhile cause and that they can actually affect change in policy. So I think that there is a trend asking for movements, movements that involve the, the general population rather than governments or NGOs. Maybe NGOs spearheading them or focusing them, but it's essentially the people that need to be mobilized. Well, thank you, Adam, for everything. And um, we are going to move on to a small presentation I will give. And I'm going to essentially try and frame the whole thing of uh, supply of uh, resources from an esoteric point of view and uh, present the actual issues and energies involved in what we know as expressed reality, what is uh, the reality that we're actually living in. So let me share my screen. Okay. There we go. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so I'm going to start by presenting a few excerpts from Alice Bailey's books. Um, I have a small presentation, a small slideshow, which I can share in the chat for anyone interested. And I'm just going to comment, briefly comment on these things. So a man is governed by the law of attraction, is evolved through the law of economy and is coming under the law of synthesis. Very, very, very simply, that says that like attracts like, this is the law of attraction and like attracts like may operate on the biological level, the biological relationship that we're all very aware of, may, may operate on the level of, um, emotion or mentality, which means similar beliefs, similar um, interests, um, similar ideals. And last, it may, it may operate on the level of vibration, which is something that surpasses the other kinds of relationship and likeness. And with the similarity in vibration, we are sort of coming to maybe one of the highest expressions of the law of attraction. And the law of synthesis, for us, perhaps the easiest way to understand that is that different, um, different people, uh, different groups of uh, different materials, of different qualities, of different vibrations are brought together, unified or synthesized under a common purpose that is for the benefit of all. So this is what's said here. So economy governs the material process with which he is not so much consciously concerned. Attraction governs his connection with other units or groups. And synthesis is the law of his inner self of the life within the form. So economy is of course very much involved in everything that uh, governs material processes. And it's summed up with the, in the very simple, um, a way that when something can happen with uh, an 
an amount of energy of one, nature is not going to expand 1.2 or, or two to do it. So matter is governed by that which requires the least energy to happen, okay? The outer illusion is but the phenomenal appearance of the subjective realities conditioned by men's thoughts throughout the ages. I'm just putting this here because I wanted to draw your attention how important the way we think is about the, in shaping the reality that we actually live in. Some dim idea providing analogy, even when eluding specifications, might be gained if you will endeavor to think of the human family, the fourth kingdom in nature as an entity, as constituting a single unit, expressing itself through the many diversified forms of mind. You as an individual are an integral part of humanity, yet you lead your own life, you react to your own impressions, you respond to exterior influences and impacts, and then you, in your turn, you emanate influences, send forth some form of character radiation and express, and express some quality or qualities. You thereby, and in some measure, affect your environment and those whom you contact. Yet, all the while, you remain part of a phenomenal entity to which we give the name of humanity. Disease is seldom of individual origin unless a man misspends his life and definitely misuses his body, and the bulk of the disease to be found in the world today is almost entirely of group origin. It is inherited, is the result of infection, or the result of undernourishment. The last named cause is primarily an evil of civilization. It is the result of economic maladjustment or the corruption of food. The keynote to good health, esoterically speaking, is sharing or distribution, just as it is the keynote to the general well being of humanity. The economic ills of mankind closely correspond to disease in the individual. There is a lack of free flow of the necessities of life to the points of distribution. These points of distribution are idle. The direction of the distribution is faulty and only through a sane and worldwide grasp of the new age principle of sharing will human ills be cured. Only by the right distribution of energy will the ills of the physical body of individual man also be cured. This is a fundamental, I would say the fundamental principle of all spiritual healing. In the last analysis, also this presupposes an eventual and scientific recognition of the etheric body of the planet and consequently of man. As I earlier pointed out, these latter causes of disease are not primarily the result of inner subtle forces, but are the pouring upwards into the etheric body of energies from the physical plane itself and from the outer world of forces.
where there is a free flow of life force and no impediment to the circulation of the life fluid via the blood, there will consequently and normally be the presence of perfect, perfect health. So <clears throat> what we are told is essentially that a free circulation of the energies on the planetary body is a way of essentially adjusting or adjusting in, um, in a right manner or rebalancing or uh, re -re readdressing and healing the cleavages that we are presently facing. How is this happening? There are seven major centers on the human etheric body and they are responsible for the distribution of planetary prana to the physical systems and organs in the human physical body. Similarly, there are seven major centers on the planetary etheric body and they are responsible for the distribution of solar prana to the planetary physical body or simply across the planet. When these centers become congested, um, which means that they are given more to do than they're, they're capable of, and overconsumption might be a good example of that. Or when they, these centers are idle, inevitably they won't be able to distribute the right amount of energy to the area under their influence. That may have, may externalize as what we might describe as poor conditions. We presently know that there are five active centers on the planet. These are Geneva, London, Darjeeling, Tokyo, and New York. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because it might help to start seeing nations and cities more as agents in distributing energy um, rather than just political or social or cultural um, entities. There is a layer behind all these, and this is their, their function as receivers, blenders, <laughs> and transmitters of energy. I would like to finish by drawing to your attention to the opposite of the principle of sharing and say that the basis of all work is fundamentally the sense of separateness. This fundamental individualism or pleased recognition of isolationism leads to all the secondary causes of war, greed, producing economic disaster, hatred, producing national and international friction, and cruelty, producing pain and death. The West has turned its attention to the issue of war again due to the ongoing armed conflict in Europe. A war, insofar as we know, has never ceased in the recording history of humanity. Sadly, to date, we haven't been sensitive or perceptive enough to be urged to undertake remedial action by events not happening in our immediate proximity. This will be decreasingly the case as the ongoing shift from a material to an etheric culture progresses further.
you will hear more about culture and the ongoing shift in the upcoming World Goodwill Seminar, which happens under the theme of In Search of a New Culture, Perspectives on Human Flourishing. And it's on Saturday, 29th of October at 1, um, uh, 1 in the afternoon, London time, Geneva time, and New York time. So if you want, you can see, you can follow um, all of the centers. So that's it for today. Thank you. And we will get on now with our meditation, our goodwill meditation. I will switch off my camera and proceed with the meditation. Please take a comfortable um, attitude and let's get on with our meditation. So we link up in thought with all those people throughout the world who are working with this Goodwill Meditation Group. We reflect upon the fact of relationship. We are related to our family, our community, our nation, the world of nations, the one humanity made up of all races and nations. We use the mantra of unification. The souls of all are one, and I am one with them. I seek to love, not hate. I seek to serve and not exact due service. I seek to heal, not hurt. Let pain bring due reward of light and love. Let the soul control the outer form 
and life and all events and bring to light the love that underlines the happenings of time. Let vision come and insight. Let the future stand revealed. Let inner union demonstrate and outer cleavages be gone. Let love prevail. Let all people love. Reflect upon your own and humanity's relationship with all beings who dwell in the higher realms of mind and heart, the spiritual hierarchy of saints, rishis, bodhisattvas, and masters, honored by all the world's religions and spiritual groups. Imagine that you are standing together within the center of the spiritual hierarchy, immersed in the consciousness of the heart of love. For some, this heart of love is known as the Christ, and other faiths have other names for the one at the center, such as Maitreya, the Imam Mahdi, and the Kalki Avatar. Maintaining that high point of contact, let your thoughts reach out to include all members of the human family in whom the energy of goodwill is active. Silently voice the affirmation. In the center of all love, I stand. From that center, I, the soul, will outward move. From that center, I, the one who serves, will work. May the love of the divine self be shed abroad in my heart, through my group, and throughout the world.
Now visualize the energy of love flowing from the spiritual hierarchy through the men and women of goodwill and into human hearts and minds, infusing them with goodwill and creating loving and harmonious human relationships. Meditate on ways of spreading goodwill, creating right human relationships and restoring peace on earth. Realize that you are helping to build a channel between the spiritual hierarchy and humanity through which the energy of goodwill may flow, uniting the human family, solving its problems, and healing all differences and cleavages.
linked in thought with men and women of goodwill all over the world, say the great invocation, say it with deliberation and full commitment to its meaning, knowing that you are radiating its potent energies to humanity. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center, which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Take a moment to slowly come back to yourselves. And thank you for being here with us this evening and for meditating with us. We hope to see you all in the upcoming World Goodwill Seminar. Thank you.